0: Hello and welcome to Talking U-Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, U-Retina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. In this episode, we return to the area of AMD and we're delighted to be joined by a world-class faculty to discuss the pathology, new biomarkers and big data of the disease. First, though, a note that the next retina Case Club will be from St Thomas's Hospital in London on Monday, 23rd of May at 8 p.m. CEST, 7 p.m. BST. Mr. Alastair Laidlaw and Mr. Moin Mohammed will host the session where eight rapid-fire cases will be discussed. The cases will cover a wide range of retina issues, including uveitis, vitreo-retinal, medical retina, and paediatric services. Mr. Laidlaw and Mr. Mohammed will be joined by an expert discussion panel: Professor Tom Williamson, Dr. Tasneem Braithwaite. Dr. Jonathan Virgo, Mr. Nigel Davies, Miss Samantha Mann, and Miss Ilsa Ritchie. That's Monday, 23rd of May at 8 p.m. CEST, 7 p.m. BST. You can register now on the Uretina website, Uretina.org. Okay, time now for our own expert discussion. We're joined by our chairs, Professor Sandrine Zweifel from the University Hospital of Zurich and University of Zurich, and Professor Adnan Tufail from Moorfields Eye Hospital and the NHS Foundation Trust. They're joined by panelists. Professor Christine Kursho from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the United States, and Professor Bailey Freund from NYU and the Vitreous Retina Macular Consultants of New York. And finally, Professor Vassada from the Dhani Eye Institute and UCLA. Looking forward to the discussion. Sandrine, over to you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. Hi, everybody. It's a great pleasure to open this uh, podcast which will focus on age macular degeneration, a leading cause of blindness. You can find almost 1,300 papers published in 2022 alone about this topic. We will discuss in the next 30 minutes what are some of the most relevant new inform- information about AMD, including new classification, new nomenclature, new biomarkers, new insights into pathophysiology, also in particular regarding the non-exudative form of AMD. I think most of this information is also relevant for you in your clinical daily routine. I can guarantee you that we have a fantastic panel of international experts to discuss this topic. It's a great honor to welcome Professor Kershio from the University of uh, Alabama. She is a world-renowned AMD expert. She discovered and characterized Drusen pathway. She contributed also the first comprehensive histological description of subretinal Drusen deposits. And there would be many more contributions to mention. I'm also excited that Professor Betty Freund can join us from New York, another world-renowned AMD expert. He was one of the persons who classified neovascular AMD in a new form, but also the dry form of AMD. He developed the treatment extend regimen, which has gained widely acceptance. And then we have also Professor Vas Sada from LA with us. Amazing that he who joined us as well. He gave last year's Euretina lech- Lecture, where he talked about the role of chorea capillaries in AMD. And today my co-chair is uh, Professor Atman He is joining us from London.
2: Thank you, uh, Sandrine. Uh, um, and you've really emphasized what an amazing panel we have here today. And uh, welcome to the audience. And we're going to try and evolve this conversation from um, understanding some of the pathology to imaging to large data and potential ther- novel therapeutics. So we're going to start uh, with Professor Crucio. Um, we don't still don't have a magic bullet treatment um, to target the underlying uh, pathology and progression of AMD. And Professor Curcio has done some remarkable work in the pathobiology, and we're hoping that the insights that she has um, gleaned in the last few years um, will help um, give us some a novel targets and understanding of treatment. So, uh, Professor Curcio, what do you think um, from the work you have done um, gives us the, the best insights, in your opinion, in terms of understanding of AMD? Uh, pathology or progression?
3: Well, thank you uh, for that question. There are a bunch of threads that come together. I think uh, one of them is validation of this great uh, imaging technology called optical coherence tomography. There's so much detail in uh, the current commercially available devices that if we can all agree on what's in there, we can follow the disease in great detail in the clinic and in living people. So one of the things that my lab did was figure out how a spectralis could work in uh, donor eyes as well as in living people, and that enabled us to screen many donor eyes that had a- AMD, plus work uh, extensively with uh, Bailey Freund and, uh, and several others uh, to study a uh, patient's eyes who when they became eye donors. And that really illuminated really the tininess of the detail that can be seen in OCT. Uh, the signal source for reflectivity is essentially subcellular. So if you can tell what the bands are telling you, you know uh, not only what, this, what cells are involved, but also the organelles. And uh, that is actually a link uh, directly to biochemical studies because you know what cells are organelles to isolate. One of the things that we've learned in these studies, uh, which characterized drusen deposits, uh, basal laminar deposit, pathways of neurodegeneration that hadn't been seen before, like outer retinal tubulation, uh, pathways of RPE fate, that by piecing together little bits of AMD pathology, there's a pretty clear progression sequence coming into view, in my opinion, uh, paired with a few key cell biology experiments to show what the RPE was capable of releasing. And so in my view, uh, that helps us focus on uh, choroid capillaris and Brooks membrane as initiating events to the disease, but also to the pathways in the neurosensory retina and RPE that are uh, blocked by aging changes in the transport system out uh, to the choroid capillaris. The other thing that I would highlight at this point is really defining better what's in drusen, soft drusen, basal linear deposits, and subretinal drusenoid deposits, or reticular pseudodrusen, and these two uh, deposits, extracellular deposits in the eye, map very well on the topography of the f- uh, foveal cones in their support system and the rod photoreceptors and their support system. That really helps us uh, focus on parts of retinal physiology that uh, need to be uh, learned a lot more uh, closely than they have been in the past and so that's a bridge uh, back to laboratory studies
0: fantastic so an
2: immense amount of work that you're doing what do you think of the kind of the earliest changes as a you know a bit of a debate is a primary RPE problem photoreceptor problem corocapillaris problem do you think they're separable? Is there any way of testing that? Uh, and maybe a supplementary question is, you know, how much of um, the aging driver is there relative to some of the genetic drivers like complement? Quite a complex question.
3: Well, um, by the numbers, um, aging is still the largest risk factor. Although the, genet- the genetics are in total are, are huge, but aging is uh, very large. And the numbers that really made an impression on me are the ones that were learned from epidemiology from color fundus photography, showing the tremendous progression risk for uh, a drusen uh, centered under the fovea, the fovea in the inner ring of the ETDRS. It's double digit progression risk on a population level. That's just huge. It's one of the biggest effects. I think it is the biggest effect in AMD. So aging is huge. I think we have a good idea of how drusen build up throughout adulthood and uh, for me, I have a very geometric model of AMD, which is that we can assemble, if we understand what's going on in individual layers, we can assemble them by stacking the layers and seeing where the changes occur first and most prominently. And and if you look at the change in aging between say 20 years old and 90 years old, based on published literature, uh, the biggest changes are in the choroid and the capillaris, And the RPE is actually, in terms of cell number, is the healthiest cell in the back of the eye. That that may um, surprise people to hear that, but I think the RPE is doing its job longer than anybody else. And the RPE photoreceptors are affected early simply because they're furthest away from the capillaris, And uh, we, we can functionally test that with uh, rod-mediated dark adaptation which is a dynamic measure of photoreceptor sustenance from the circulation, measuring the impact of that whole complex. But for me, because also we know how to make drusen in a dish with healthy RPE cells and um, by putting putting them on the right barrier, you don't have to feed them photoreceptors or anything. I think that the RPE is, doing its job of releasing materials that are not crossing to the choroid, and that piles up as drusen, and the drusen are the direct precursors of both neovascularization and atrophy.
2: Do you think That model holds true in patients that have predominantly reticular pseudodrusen. So we know, we increasingly recognize with um, high quality OCT um, the existence of a pseudodrusen, That patients with that often have uh, poor adaptation, dark adaptation problems. Do you think that has a different uh, pathobiology than Drusen associated AMD? Are they separable?
3: Increasingly, I think they are. Uh, I mean, I started from the point of view that I adopted from the SARCs, which was that the material in the subretinal space was actually the same as uh, what was uh, in drusen. In fact, uh, from the perspective of histochemistry, they're quite different. They have different lipid composition. They'd have different, some overlapping, but some different proteins. They're not identical at all. The things that I've learned over the uh, last few years of studying uh, subretinal drusenoid deposits is that there are far fewer cells in there than there are in drusen. Drusen are very pro-inflammatory. Uh, there are a lot of cells in there. We see macrophages and uh, subducted RPE, but the cellular there's hardly any cellular invasion in um, SDD until maybe late stages of photoreceptor loss. And the other thing, um, findings that have uh, impressed me is that um, in a small study, um, uh, Voss is a co-author, uh, we showed that the worst visual function is not associated with the deposits themselves. It's closer to the fovea than when the deposits are. And it turns out that type 3 neovascularization, which is um, highly associated with the subretinal deposits, uh, they initiate closer to the fovea than the deposits are. So in my view, the the subretinal deposits are actually a marker for an eye at risk and not necessarily for particular cells at risk. And so that that could fit it easily into um, a choroidal insufficiency type model.
2: Uh, thank you, Christine, that's a uh, really um, helpful insight. Maybe we can pass over to um, uh, Professor uh, Bailey Freund now, and uh, Sandrine will take over the discussion.
1: Thanks, al We already heard like um, interesting uh, insights from uh, histopathological side, and uh, Christine mentioned about uh, the collaboration she has with you, uh, Bailey, regarding clinical pathologic correlations. You have uh, published uh, together many uh, amazing papers which uh, contributed to our understanding uh, of imaging biomarkers in AMD. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about type 1 macular neovascularization. Uh, There is a a recently uh, published uh, paper where it gives some insight that type 1 MNV can provide uh, nutritional support uh, to the overlying photoreceptors. And you also give some insights that this might also change um, how you treat these uh, patients in your clinics.
4: Thank you, Sandrine, for the question. It really has been through uh, the collaboration with uh, Christine that, you know, it's taught me that OCT is just such an invaluable tool. And very early on, I felt that a multimodal approach to evaluating neovascular AMD was preferable to one based on fluorescein. Alone, Uh, Christine has always thought that just about everything that she can see with high-quality histology can be seen with OCT, and that just keeps getting more true as time goes by. We now have seen the introduction of high-resolution OCT that It's just getting rolled out three micron axial resolution. So we can basically see individual uh, cells. So you ask about type one neovascularization going all the way back to 2010 when uh, you and Michael Engelbert and I published an editorial on sort of switching to an anatomic based classification. uh, I've observed that those eyes do well and seem to be less uh, susceptible to macular atrophy. And it was uh, Dick Green and Hans Grass-Nicholas who had proposed that uh, type one neovascularization sub-RPE or more specifically between RPE and its basal lamina and the intercollagenous layer Brooks membrane that it can actually recapitulate the the cori capillaris, and that could potentially provide nutritional support for the overlying RP and retina and reduce the propensity for atrophy. So when Christine and I had the opportunity to study a well-preserved donor with longstanding non-exudative type 1, that was exactly what we found was that The inner layer of the uh, type 1 neovascular membrane closely resembled the cori capillaris and had fenestrations and had uh, transport vesicles that indicated that it was actually doing something and the overlying retina in that uh, patient was well-preserved. Just recently, Voss has published a paper looking at the inner layer of type one neovascularization with OCTA just out in British Journal of Ophthalmology. And when that inner layer is very dense in terms of its vascular flow, there seems to be less atrophy. So uh, my sort of personal belief is that one of the ways we're gonna treat this disease is learning how to use type one to our advantage and and, because I think it's the most effective at sort of slowing uh, this disease uh, uh, process.
1: When you um, talked about these, uh, let's say quiescent or or non-exudative type one macular neovascularization, we have learned that uh, detection of uh, this entity might play a crucial role when we have uh, new treatments available for the dry form of, of AMD. Uh, can you give like some, um, n- know what, what are the most important uh, signs you would need to consider uh, when you will need to select patients? I mean, you talked about the double layer sign, the splitting of RPM and Brooks membrane. So when in an ideal world, we will have quite soon a treatment uh, available uh, we heard about uh, pexa um, like, what is your opinion about that? What would be your patient selection when you have a patient who has uh, non-exudative type one macular neovascularization in the fellow eye, but advanced atrophy in the other eye? Would you think that would be a good patient uh, for treatment? And then the next question is, um, you are also part of the, the CAM group as uh, many others on, on the panel here. Why do you think it is so important that we define different stages of atrophy more precisely?
4: Oh, there's a, a lot there. Just uh, the, the first, you know, the recognition that there could be a non-exudative type one really goes back to the work done with ICG quite a long time ago. Uh, Put Hatsanos from Thailand, David Geyer, Larry Yannuzzi, they, they recognized that that fellow of patients with a, a cult had these uh, quiescent membranes picked up as a plaque with ICG and were more likely to you know, go on and convert to exudative disease. Lorkey Schneider was another paper around that time uh, showing that. I think that in the trials of complement inhibition we've seen higher rates of conversion so knowing that that exists and it's actually a relatively common finding to pick up non-exudative could be relevant in choosing patients for complement I think that in that situation you know it's I would probably be reluctant to treat an eye with known non-exudative because if we see exudative changes, for now they're going to need two injections, you know, perhaps monthly to control that. So uh, those, you know, that's one of those are some of the issues with the the CAM group. Just defining the precursor stages is critical. Having uh, measurable endpoints for clinical trial that could be uh, used to, to monitor progression. of, It was mentioned before fundus autofluorescence. It has some limitations in terms of uh, you know which eyes it really could be done well with in the center of the fovea with macular pigment sometimes a little hard to quantify so OCT I think just gets closer to the anatomic ground truth and we'll probably will learn that there's a certain stage that the, you know, the the retina is too far gone to really see a measurable benefit from certain uh, treatments. And so I think all of us who are researching this think that ultimately we need to have better biomarkers for patients that will be likely to get these more advanced forms later and intervene much earlier once we have promising uh, therapeutics that could potentially be used for long-term and starting earlier.
1: Thank you, Betty. You were one of the persons who very early tried to treat patients with neovascular AMD in a more personalized treatment approach. Now, this is an approach actually almost, uh, or, or many of us are uh, using in our daily clinical life. When you could look into the future, how do you think we will probably manage AMD in the future?
4: I, I think a lot depends on what... Uh comes about with long-term uh, delivery. Uh, I, hope, I think that we're all getting uh, a bit uh, frustrated with just the, just continuing. It's great that we have anti-VEGF drugs and uh, it's much better than where uh, we were with thermal laser when I started practice, but just continued treatment is such a huge burden on uh, the patients, their families, you know, it's it's just the economics of it with increasing prevalence is is tough. So hopefully longer-term delivery is something we will see in the future, better recognition of which patients really need to be maintained long-term. You know trying to individualize that's always been something that's been uh very uh important to me and made sense because i think once you start to look at different types of lesions they behave in very different ways now there's a whole sort of new mechanism that we're seeing with whether you want to call it pachycory disease or venous uh, overload corydopathy This really seems like more of a venous insufficiency driven sort of overlapping with central serous mechanism that leads to neovascularization. Probably much less aggressive, but much more prone to form polyps or these aneurysmal lesions. So you really don't want to let those occur and we'll have to just get different management and hopefully better therapeutics over time.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Bailey, for elaborating this. I give the word over to uh, Adnan.
2: Great. Um, So we've um, heard about the kind of details of histopathology and imaging on individual patients in front of us or uh, PATH specimens. And maybe we can move direction slightly as we um, invite uh, Professor Sardar's comments. Um, we, have in the last few years, have been very fortunate that we've got, you know, electronic record systems and imaging systems where we can collect larger data sets. And we've also got some very important natural history studies, all star, star, How do you feel that these large data sets may be helpful in our understanding um, of age-related macular generation? Thanks very much,
5: Adnan, for that that question. I'm I'm going to step back for a moment and just mention. Uh, the Ryan Initiative for Macular Research, which was an effort that was started by Steve Ryan. It was a multidisciplinary effort to really try to identify the knowledge gaps and potential opportunities to try to move towards ultimately a cure for this atrophic aspect of of AMD. And one of the things that became apparent from that effort was that we did have significant knowledge gaps. There was a concern uh, that that I think Bailey and maybe Christine also alluded to this, which was that you know perhaps we're intervening too late in this disease. Ideally, we'd like to be able to intervene earlier. Uh, but uh, you know, it became apparent to us that we there was a certain lack of information in terms of being able to plan uh, therapeutic trials that could intervene uh, at an earlier on. Uh, you know, how how does the disease progress through its earliest stages? Uh, there are there intervention points and biomarkers that we could use that could actually power? Uh, trials. Uh, And that's where I think, uh, you know, big data sets are really valuable. Another important gap I I should mention that was identified was, you know, there's a broad manifestation of AMD across the globe. Uh, There's controversy as to whether we're even talking about a single disease. Uh, And so so if you really are going to try to understand the the manifestations of the disease and potentially develop uh, biomarkers to power these future generation of trials, uh, I think you need to be able to explore large data sets from diverse populations uh, to be able to get these kinds of answers. So, so certainly uh, very indebted to the efforts that you and Frank Holtz have been doing and leading this, uh, the MacuStar effort, um, you know, prospective data collections like that, and particularly looking at eyes with intermediate AMD and, and assessing them with modern multimodal imaging methods, crucial to be able to inform uh, how we might tackle and approach this uh, approach this disease for trial designs going forward. Um, uh, I I will say at the same time, though, that, uh, that, you know, these prospective studies certainly are expensive. And I'll also mention, you know, a a wonderful study that Cynthia Owsley and Christine Cursey are doing in lstar 2, again, a population-based study to sort of look at even the earlier phases of the disease, uh, looking at the transition from normal aging to early AMD. But the challenge with these prospective uh, data collections, of course, is that they, they can be expensive and it's hard to do very, very large data sets. And so that's where there's, I think, a tremendous opportunity uh, in the fact that we have tremendous amounts of retrospective data that's been collected over, over many years, uh, you know, really long-term potential follow-up data. The challenge of those data sets is, of course, that they can be somewhat chaotic. Uh, as you know, Adnan, um, that uh, with uh, variabilities in terms of the types of information available, uh, the, the intervals in which they're collected, uh, and that's where um, there's a real opportunity in this era of big data and artificial intelligence techniques to make sense of the chaos, if you will, to try to see trends and glean important information by being able to probe these data sets. Um, we also have, obviously, uh, the good fortune of in this AI space a world having algorithms that can automatically identify some of the important biomarkers that were mentioned earlier in the discussion, whether it's Aurora or CROAR or other OCT features such as hyperreflective foci that may highlight an increased risk for progression. So there's an opportunity to probe these data sets with. Um, with these types of tools. And so, because this was one of the problems, gaps identified in the ria initiative, we've, we've, uh, we've been working on, on, on bringing online a broader global imaging consortium to try to aggregate uh, imaging data sets worldwide of elderly patients, patients with AMD. um, So we can understand the manifestations of the disease globally, better characterize its its burden, and better understand understand its progression uh, through using these uh, types of, uh, of tools that this big data AI era, I think, enables us to do. And so, so I, I think that, uh, that, you know, there's a real opportunity uh, and we have to seize it. There are obviously challenges that have to be managed as well, uh, but, uh, but I think
2: uh, that the time is now to, to do these types of things. So um, congratulations on helping drive this really important complementary Ryan initiative, which you said um, really adds something very different from the, the very slightly rigid but important prospective studies. Um, And I think you made a really interesting point that it probably isn't one disease. And really, weirdly, in order to personalise AMD, you may need large data sets. So it's kind of big data to look at individuals. Um, It may also hopefully give us insight about what treatment to give what patient. We've got lots of clinical trials, lots of different complement inhibitors, other non-complement inhibitor treatments Um, What do you think are going to be the exciting directions of travels on therapeutics for both neovascular and non-neovascular AMD that you think is around the corner um, for the, the retina specialist? Yeah, great, great question, Adnan. And uh, and as you
5: and 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 Sandrine pointed out earlier, uh, certainly in terms of the closest to potential regulatory approval, I suppose are these uh, complement uh, inhibitors targeting various aspects of the complement uh, pathway. Certainly, there is a a a genetic um, and and perhaps a histopathologic basis to to think that complement may at least be relevant at some part, portion of the disease process. But uh, as Christine nicely highlighted, it's a, it's a complicated uh, interplay. Uh, there are many different mechanisms. Uh, I don't know if complement's gonna be, in fact, I would say that most of us probably would believe that complement won't be the first, the whole story, uh, maybe a good start, but we know that even uh, in the best case scenario with the complement inhibitors as currently um, studied in the clinical trials in this relatively advanced stage of patients with already manifest atrophy, uh, that at best you can achieve a modest slowing of progression. The patients still worsen. You're certainly not arresting the disease. So uh, I think that a multifaceted approach is gonna be required. I'm very intrigued by Bailey's suggestion uh, that maybe we'll be able to use neovascularization to a a good effect, but perhaps as a way to recapitulate or, or improve the efficiency or sufficiency, if you will, of the choroid and, and the cori capillaris, which of course is the business end of the choroid. Uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, other strategies uh, for dealing, for example, some of the insights we've gained from Christine's work with regards to the lipid um, problems that occur uh, in the accumulation of of, um, lipid um, metabolites and the like uh, in in Brick's membrane and the uh, outer retina and RPE, uh, that those obviously are important um, aspects as well. And maybe even earlier um, in in the disease course. Uh, And of course, uh, you know, other strategies potentially to protect the viability health of these aging cells. I think it's going to require a comprehensive uh, approach. I don't think it's going to be a one-size-fit-all fits- all. And as you very correctly pointed out Adnan, because it may be more than one disease, you may uh, you know, I do anticipate a future because of the benefits of big data, where we may select a particular cocktail maybe blended um, with different percentages. Uh, based on uh, specific attributes of a patient's disease. And also, I will say, depending on the the, the state of the patient's disease, where are they along their course of of degeneration? Because obviously, patients have already lost vision from atrophy. They'll require a
2: different therapeutic approach, uh, even beyond the ones that we've discussed. So to some extent, um, you know, the challenge is a bit like something like atheroma, where we've not found a magic bullet but we have made inroads and it's probably a cocktail, but we have an advantage with the eye over atheroma that we can visualize it, get beautiful OCTs, align the pathology to get really good insights into that. So um, I think we've really covered a really nice spectrum from pathology to OCT imaging, and features that we may or may not decide are important when we start complement inhibitors to big data. And hopefully that will be a good overview of some of the important things in this area. Sandrine, would you uh, like to add any further comments or thoughts about that?
1: No, I think I just would like uh, to thank all the uh, uh, panelists for giving us such an interesting uh, insight and uh, from their perspective, I think we we covered like uh, really the whole range of of AMD, but there is still a lot we haven't solved yet and. Um, thank you all for for listening and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, I have to say I, I learned a lot from this discussion today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, Sandrine and Adnan, thank you for a fantastic discussion. Thank you also to our brilliant panelists, the fantastic faculty, and lots to take away from that discussion. I hope you'll agree. That's it for this episode. As always, we welcome your comments and suggestions to podcast at uretina.org. If you like this episode, there are more in the feed, so please do subscribe, rate, share with colleagues. If you have a moment review, we'd really appreciate it. I'm Jonathan McRae. Until next time on Talking Uretina.